Let me ask you this morning, what do you fear? What do you fear most? Fear, it's a very interesting emotion or response. It's universal. It's experienced by all peoples from all nations, all backgrounds. But different people fear different things. People don't seem to be born with a given set of fears. Usually some traumatic event happens when they're young, and that instills in them a fear that carries through to their adulthood. I remember for, for some reason watching the movie when I was a kid, Arachnophobia. And I should not have watched that movie as a kid. It was just not not good. And that movie gave me arachnophobia for a couple of years. I remember as a kid, every time I want I went to turn on a lamp under a you know lamp head, I, I would have to thoroughly examine it for spiders first, because in the movie that's one of the ways the spiders attacked, like through the lamp. Anyway, just fear, fear when you're a kid. And thankfully I got over that fear as time went on. But plenty of people carry their fears into adulthood. Some people have ophidiophobia. That's a fear of snakes. And for others, it's cynophobia, a fear of dogs. Not all people fear, fear animals, though. Some fear situations. Acrophobia is the fear of heights. Claustrophobia, you know that one, fear of enclosed spaces. And then there's agoraphobia. It's a fear of not being able to escape a, a place or a situation. Some people have a fear of injections, a fear of flying, a fear of germs. And for a strange few people, a fear of clowns. <laughs> Number two on most lists, though, is the fear of death, which makes it really interesting to find out what number one is on most lists. It's the fear of public speaking. For most people, they, they seemingly fear that the potential humiliation that public, spe- public speaking can bring. I guess pastors are exempt from that, but for most people. And what I find fascinating about all these fears, though, is they all take place In the brain, fear is a stress placed upon your body induced by your brain's perception of a threat or a danger. And it's just amazing to see the mind-body connection. You can just present someone with something as simple as a spider, and it can cause their body to respond with shortness of breath, dizziness, nausea. For some people, in extreme cases, they just start to sweat. The hair on the back of their neck stands up. They fall into a panic attack. Some people can even lose consciousness just by seeing something. That's powerful. Fear's ability to affect people is quite profound and quite powerful. Now think about this. Did you know that fear existed before the fall? Did you know that God even created us to have fear? He did, but but not in the way you might think. You see, there are two different types of fear. The first is the fear of terror or dread. And this fear, it's the one experienced by all these phobias I just mentioned. This type of fear did not exist before the fall. Although maybe you want to argue that Adam and Eve should have had a fear of snakes. Nonetheless, the original creation was so perfect, they didn't need to fear anything. They didn't have to dread anything in their environment, not even death. They were created free from that that fear of terror or dread. But there is a second type of fear, and this is the fear of reverence or respect. And this type of fear did exist before the fall. Although Adam and Eve, they didn't have anything to dread, God did create them to fear, to fear him, to respect him, to revere him, to honor him as mighty. And this fear is a good thing. It was a safeguard against evil. Yes, they had a loving relationship with God. He walked with them in the garden. But nonetheless, they should have feared and respected him as God, as mighty. And that fear would have kept them from doing foolish things. If only they had treated God with more fear and respect. It would have kept them free from the sin and the disaster that they eventually encountered. Just a few weeks ago, a woman zookeeper in Sweden was feeding wolves in their enclosure when eight of the wolves surrounded her, attacked her, and killed her. Earlier, the zookeeper, this lady, she had said that she didn't fear these wolves in the sense of being terrified of them. She wasn't scared of them, which that's okay. But according to the story, she also was not fearful of them in the sense of respecting them as wild animals. That's not okay. That's dangerous. 
And though you may overcome having a, a terrifying fear of certain things, you still need to retain a healthy respect of many things. And it's the same with God. Believers especially, although you don't need to dread God's judgment anymore, you still need to reverentially fear and respect God. God's a lion, and you would be foolish to treat him otherwise. For believers in Christ, for Christians, we have good news. The good news is that God rescues us from that first type of fear. Our encouragement is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to fear hell or death or judgment. Condemnation, we, we don't have to. We shouldn't fear that anymore. God has removed those fears. But that pre-fall fear remains. And even believers need to still regard God with respect, with reverence, with awe. This is a good type of fear. And in fact, it's prescribed all throughout the Bible. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 12.13-14 The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. 2 Corinthians 7.1 Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this morning we come to yet another text in Scripture that likewise instructs us to have this fear, this healthy respect of God and who he is. So turn with me now to 1 Peter chapter 1, the text we'll be looking at this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 21, which forms one long sentence in the Greek. But I wanted to start us off with verse 17. That's where it's at. That's where this, this one and only, the main command is at, that regulates this whole section. It's in verse 17. And as you can probably guess, it's a command for us to live fearfully before God during our time on earth. Look at 1 Peter 1. Let's start off just reading verse 17. He says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, then conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The command here, there's just one in this whole section, and it is to conduct yourselves in fear, to live in fear. That's the command. That can sound kind of strange, almost harsh, like really you're being told to live in fear. Who'd want to do that? But the fear that Peter's talking about, it's, it's not the type of fear a slave might have, you know, cowering before a wicked master. No, the fear he's talking about is that of a son who fearfully respects and esteems his father. The son loves his father. He respects him. He doesn't want to displease him. That's what we're talking about here. In the same way, believers should fear God. Still, though, understand this fear that we should have of God, it doesn't contradict the confidence we should have in God, in our salvation, in his love for us. Both should be true, true at the same time. We're confident in God, but we still we still fear him. For instance, you may have, most of you, probably guys in the room, you have total confidence in your driving ability. Every guy thinks he's like the best driver. You have total confidence in your driving ability, but still, you're not going to drive on the opposite side of the freeway. Why not? Well, even though you may be confident in your driving ability, you still have a healthy fear, respect for, for your car, for other people's cars, knowing they can do a lot of damage. So though you may be confident, this fear, this respect, keeps you from doing foolish things, like driving on the opposite side of the freeway. Or another example, you know, I grew up with German shepherd dogs, a couple of them throughout the years, and, and they were actually literally trained as guard dogs. In German, they were they were pretty you know fierce. If you said the magic words in German, they would attack. But you know, growing up, I wasn't scared of them. They were my dogs. I mean, I grew up with them. I had the confidence to to pet them, play with them, you know, all that good stuff. At the same time, though, I still had a healthy fear or respect for them, knowing that they were pretty fierce dogs. And so I wouldn't go behind them, grab their tail, and just pull as hard as I could. I wasn't going to do that. If I did that, they'd probably kill me. 
And so this fear kept me from doing foolish things. And it's the same with God. We need to have this, this healthy fear in the form of respect or reverence to keep us from doing foolish things. And the book of Hebrews tells us something amazing. It says, now after the cross, we can approach God. We can approach the throne of grace with boldness, with confidence. We can stand confidently before the God of the universe. And that's an amazing thing. But at the same time, though, he's still the God of the universe. And though you may approach him in confidence, you would be foolish to act out of line. We've been saved by Christ's death, yes, but God is still God, and you need to respect him as such. And this fear, this respect, will keep you free from doing foolish things, namely sinning. So you get the point. It's, it's for this reason that, that a command like fearing God, it's not a harsh command. In fact, it's, it's a good command. It's a beneficial command. It's for our own benefit. We need to fear God. Now, I want, I want to take this further. I want to help you better understand and apply this fear of God in your own lives because that's what Peter does. Peter knows just how important it is for believers to have this fear of God, so he expands on this. In fact, he gives some motivations for us to do this, and that's what I want us to go off of now. From the rest of our text, verses 17 through 21, I want to give you now four motivators to help you live fearfully before God. Four motivators to help you live fearfully before God. These are four reasons why, why you should fear God. And hopefully, hopefully they will drive you to live rightly before him. Four motivators to help you live fearfully before God. First one is this, God's character. God's character. Look at verse 17 again. It begins with an important conditional statement. Verse 17. He says, If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Peter starts off with this if statement. He expects a positive response, like you're going to say yes, but he wants you to stop and to think and ask yourself, is this true for me? I mean, do you really call God your father? Do you? And if so, do you know what you're saying? Do you understand what that means, what that comes with? And the Jews, they, they were not opposed to calling God their father. It's just they never would do so in a personal sense. But then Christ came along and he taught us differently. Remember what he taught? Remember how he taught us to pray? How to relate to God? He said, Matthew 6, 9, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus came and that he taught us to pray directly to God himself as our Father. I mean, how can this be? How can we possibly call the God of the universe our personal Father? That, that just doesn't seem right. And it's not right. That's not right. But for those who embrace Jesus as Savior, what does God do for them? He adopts, adopts them into his family, and he makes them his children, such that they can say, rightfully, that God is their Father in heaven. For believers in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. You're not slaves of sin anymore. You're sons of God. Therefore, you don't need to fear. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear judgment. But here's, Peter, here's Peter's point. If this is you, if this is true for you, if you call upon God as Father, and you should, then although you don't need to fear hell, you still need to remember who your father is, you still need to remember his character, and then you still need to, therefore, verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on earth. In other words, if, if you're not getting it, if you're going to call God your father, you better understand what this comes with. If you get... And if you want the privilege, the blessing of calling God your Father, you better understand what this comes with. What does it come with? Who is this God? What's his character? Look at verse 17. Peter goes on. He says, 
This father, he's also the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. You hear preachers today all the time, they, they say, you know, God, he's now our Abba Father. We get to call him Abba, which in the Greek, if you translate that into English, it's like calling God Daddy. We get to call the God of the universe Daddy. And it's so sweet and affectionate. And, you know, there, there's truth in this. That is true. But today, it's become way too casual and flippant. Like, oh, you know, God's my dad. He, he, won't, mind. he won't mind if I do this. God may be your, your dad, but you still need to remember he's also your judge. He's also a holy judge. He's father and he's judge. Still, this is just the love and the justice of God. He's loving, he's just. God will not sacrifice his love on the altar of his justice. He also won't sacrifice his justice on the altar of his love. He's both at the same time. It's as Romans says, the kindness and the severity of God. But the point here is, just because he now becomes your father at salvation, that doesn't mean he ceases to be your judge. God will judge you, and he will judge you impartially. Don't expect special treatment from God just because you're now his child. He will judge you impartially. This word for impartial in verse 17, it means without receiving of face. In other words, God does not judge based on outward appearance. Any, any face, any mask you put on, God sees right through it. He sees right through you. You may put on your, your Sunday best. You may fool people here at church into thinking you got your act together, you're a good Christian. But God sees right to your heart. There's no fooling him, and he will judge all people accordingly without partiality. Colossians 3.25 for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So you need to remember, the same God that you confidently call upon as your father is the same God who is your judge, your impartial judge. And when you remember this, when you think about this, okay, I'm saved, he's my father, but he's, he's still my judge. What's the response? How should you respond? Fear. Fear. Not, not terror, but respect. Reverence. This should drive you to fear God, to respect him as you should. Oh, wait a second, though. Some of you are probably thinking, wait a second, God, he's not our judge anymore, though, right? I mean, he, he's not going to judge us. We're not going to be judged. I thought he already forgave us our sins. So how, how can he still judge us? How can you still say he's, he's still our judge? Well, in one sense, this is, of course, true. God has already judged Christ on the cross for your sins, so, so you're right. There's nothing left for God to judge you for. He will not judge you in the sense of heaven and hell. But he is still your fatherly judge. This is what happens at salvation. When you come to Christ, you do. You pass out of judgment into regard, and in regards of heaven and hell, in regard of your sins. But you pass into a new kind of judgment. The kind of judgment a father gives to his child. The judgment of discipline. Yes, you may no longer have to fear heaven and hell or hell, but God still judges his children in the form of discipline. And what good father does not discipline his children? And all the more so, God, because he loves us, he will bring upon us the, the stinging judgment of discipline. Not to condemn us, but to correct us. But still, that discipline hurts. Sin has consequences. And so no, just because you're saved, it, it doesn't mean you can go and, and do all you want, sin all you want. If you try it, you're going to find out just how painful sin can be. And if you do try it, God's not mocked. He will show you, yeah, you, you may be his child, you may be your father, but he will quickly show you he's still your judge. And he will still discipline you. So what should you do about this? Well, the answer, simple. Conduct yourselves, verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear. In a reverential fear during your time on earth. Respect your Father in heaven and stay away from that which he tells you to. And then it will go well. Then it will go well with you. Turn back, we're close, 
Hebrews 12. Just back a few pages of Hebrews chapter 12. You, you got to see this. This will hopefully make it all help it all make sense. Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 5. I actually mentioned this a couple weeks ago in the Father's Day sermon, but we got to see this again. It's so just dead on with what we're talking about here. Hebrews chapter 12. And look at verse 5. He says, Have you, or you have forgotten the exhortation, which is exhorted to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For... Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. He's saying, look, if you are a child of God, you're going to be disciplined. And it's in love. God disciplines his children in love. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we've all become partakers, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. What he's saying is, look, if you call God Father now, you should expect this discipline. If you're not being disciplined, then you're not a real son. You're not a real child. God necessarily judges in the form of discipline his sons to keep them holy. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Notice that word respect. That's the fear we're talking about there. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." As I mentioned a couple weeks ago, fathers have the responsibility to impartially judge their children in the form of discipline. It's what they're called to do, and God's no different. As our perfect father, he will impartially bring down the rod upon his children. And yes, your soul may be saved from hell, but his discipline still hurts, and it still stings, and you don't want it. So be holy. Live in a fearful respect before him. And let this be a a powerful motivator for you to pursue holiness. There's an easy way and a hard way to be made more like Christ in this life. Choose the easy way. Respect God as God. Do what is right. This is the first motivator for fearful living before God. It's God's character. He's your father. He's your judge. So fear him and live. This is our first motivator, God's character. Let me turn back to 1 Peter now, and we'll look at the second motivator to fearful living. It's redemption's cost. Secondly now, redemption's cost. Look at verse 17. If you address as father the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Verse 18 knowing you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter gives a second motivator here to help us live fearfully before God, and it's redemption's cost. When you stop, when you just think about the great price that was paid To redeem you, that should move you to a holy fear for the God who paid that price. First things first, you need to understand this redemption. Verses 18 and 19, they speak of our redemption. What does that mean? What does redemption mean? Well, the word for redeemed in the Greek, lutrao, it pictures us being set free or, or liberated from the slave market of sin. I'm sure many of you, you've seen the movie Schindler's List. Kind of a significant movie. It tells the story of Oskar Schindler. He's a German businessman during World War II. And he was known for saving the lives of over a thousand Jews during the Holocaust. And he did it by redeeming them. He essentially bought them from the SS. 
He employed them in his factory, and, and thereby he spared their lives. And as the war went on, he just grew in his, his compassion for these people who were being slaughtered. And so he started selling everything. He sold his stuff, his personal possessions, at great cost to himself, just so that he could ransom one, two, three more Jews from the concentration camps. That's redemption. It's the saving of a life from great peril by payment of a great price. It's the saving of a life from great peril by payment of a great price. In the same way, God redeemed us. We were lost. We were enslaved to sin. We were were condemned. But God in love, he redeemed us. He spiritually saved us for all eternity. What was the price, though? What was the price for God to redeem you? It wasn't, as Peter says, silver and gold, which is perishable. You can't redeem an imperishable soul with perishable goods. It just doesn't work. So what was the price? What did it take? It was his blood. Not just any blood, though. He says the precious blood of Christ. Blood, in a sense, it's, it's a gruesome picture, but it's biblical. The shedding of blood was necessary to forgive sins. You ever wonder about that, though? I mean, why is that true? Why is blood necessary? Why did Christ have to shed his blood, you might ask? Well, don't, don't misunderstand. The blood of Christ is not some sort of magical relic. You know, the Roman soldier who pierced his side, he was not forgiven of his sins just because he came into physical contact with Christ's blood. That's not how it works. And the blood is significant because it represents life, the life behind it. Blood is important because you can't live without it. Listen to Leviticus 17.11. Just listen along. God tells the people, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For, get this, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. There's really nothing magical about the blood. It's the life behind the blood. What's God saying here? It's very simple. A life for life. That's what it takes. A life for a life. Do you, do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be redeemed? Do you want to be saved? You better get a sacrifice. You better get a substitute. Because a life must be given for a life to be saved. That's how God has set it up. In the Old Testament, God gave the provision of animal sacrifices to cover sins, but we knew it's just not good enough. It never was good enough. That's why Christ had to come. He had to spill his blood, his life, on the cross to make true redemption. That's because his blood, his life, is more powerful than an animal or even another person. He had to shed his blood, his life, for us to be redeemed. We were just there, but we're going to go back. Turn back to Hebrews again. This time, chapter 9. We're too close, and this is too important to pass up. So just just turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 9. One more verse here. Hebrews 9. Look at verse 13. Notice how this is exactly what we've been talking about. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For, for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place, for the redemption of the transgressions, you catch that? A death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Jump down to verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's true. One may say, without 
the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A life for a life. This is what it took to redeem us, the shedding of Christ's blood. He loved us to the point of exchanging his own life for ours, and all the while we didn't deserve it. But there's more. If you look back in 1 Peter, in verse 19, not only did he give his blood, not only did he give his life, but Peter says that his blood was that as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. Unblemished, spotless. Here, Peter, he channels some imagery taken from the Old Testament Passover and sacrifices in general, where God God didn't just require any animal. He required a perfect, spotless, unblemished sacrifice. And take the Passover, for example. Do you remember the Passover? Remember how it started? The Jews were enslaved in Egypt. God was sent in the plagues. He was going to do the tenth one, the last one, where he was going to kill the firstborn of every family. And this plague was going to affect Jews and Egyptians alike. No one's going to be spared. But God he made a provision for his people to be spared so that the firstborn would be redeemed. What was the provision? Remember? They would take a lamb, sacrifice it, and then put the blood on the doorpost of their house. And if they did this, when the angel of destruction passed by, if he saw the blood, he would say, this one's clean, and he would pass over the house. Hence, the Passover. But here's the thing. What kind of a lamb did God require for the Passover? Not just any lamb. He required an unblemished one, Exodus 12.5, a perfect one, a spotless one. Why? Why did God require a spotless lamb? Well, it has to do with the idea of substitution. See, in this sacrifice that they made, God was going to make a trade, make a little trade with them. See, the lamb would, in a sense, take your sins, and you would, in a sense, take the lamb's spotlessness. But here's the thing. If you wanted to be made spotless, you needed a spotless, perfect sacrifice. But as we know, the lamb wasn't going to cut it. Even the best lamb wasn't good enough. It was a picture pointing to the perfect lamb of God who would come, that is Christ. And so Jesus came and died as the real perfect lamb, unblemished, spotless, truly righteous, so that as he took our sins upon himself, he was able to give us a truly perfect standing before God. It's redemption. We ask, what's redemption? There it is, redemption. A life for a life our sins on him, his righteousness on us. He gave his life, the perfect, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God. Makes you ask why. Why would God do this? Why does God care? Why would he pay this highest price for us? The answer is love. God loves us. He has chosen his loved ones to be saved, and he wants to redeem them. Save them from what, though? What does verse 18 say back in 1 Peter? What's he reading this from? From, he says, from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. God knows we were so lost and headed in the wrong direction. We're, we're like a donkey that's just chasing the carrot, the end of the stick, just blindly following our passions. But we didn't know we were heading for a cliff. We're just lost. The path of sin that we were on, the path of wicked pleasure, the path of idolatry, it was leading to one place, and that was death. The God could not stand for this, so he intervened to redeem us. He paid the price, he gave us Christ, he took us, and he turned us around on our path, and that's redemption. So I trust I trust you get this, you understand, you're, you're with me for now. Where are we going with this? Well, we'll consider this. If all this is true, if God really did pay the ultimate price to redeem us from our futile way of life, what do you think God thinks when we return to our futile way of life? What do you think he thinks when we go back? You think God is pleased when we return 
to that old way of living after being redeemed? Of course not. It's, it's like slapping God in the face. It's like spitting on the blood. Just imagine if all those Jews that Schindler ransomed, what if they just turned around and just cursed him to his face? Yet that's pretty much what we do when we return to our sins after being redeemed by God. And that's the point Peter's driving at here. That's where we're getting at. He's making this point. God just paid the ultimate price to redeem us from sin. And yet we go back? We go back. How can we go back? Why do we go back? The point that Peter is making, it's it's very simple. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't disrespect the cross, the blood, the redemption. Instead, what should you do? Fear God. Fear God. Respect God more than this. Don't go back, but honor God in, in how you live. If you're here this morning, if you've stumbled back in some of your old ways, get this second point. Remember redemption's cost and then return. Don't go back. Fear God. Obey Him. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body and do what is right in light of this blood, the precious blood that was spilt for you. Do what is right. This is the second motivator to holy and fearful living before God is redemption's cost. Third now, third motivator, Christ's mission. Christ's mission. Look again to verse 20. Speaking of Christ, it says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Christ didn't come for himself. He did not come to give his life for himself. He came for you. That's amazing to think about. This is his mission. First things first, so look at the beginning of verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, it says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? What does it mean to say that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world? Does it mean that God simply knew Jesus before the world? No. We said this way back in 1 Peter 1, verse 2. God's foreknowledge, it's not simple knowledge in advance. It is relationship in advance. And for God to foreknow Jesus doesn't just mean he, he predicted the future. It means he planned the future. For God to foreknow Christ means that God planned, ordained, and predestined Christ to be the suffering servant long before creation. And this was his foreknown and predetermined role. That's what scripture says. Acts 2.23, what does it say? It says that Christ was delivered over to be crucified for what? Or by what? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Just part of the plan. How is this significant, though? Well, just, just think about it. When did God plan to redeem you? When did he plan to redeem you? Was it, was it after the fact? After you sinned? After the fall? And was God scrambling around? Okay, these guys, are just they fall into sin. What am I going to do? What am I going to do to redeem them now? Is the cross just a half-baked after the fact, plan to redeem you? No. God planned your redemption through Christ's mission in eternity past. Before you were even born, he planned this mission to redeem you. So here's the question. Do you think that your redemption is a big deal? Is this a big deal? Is this part of a big plan? If so... Do you think you should live in light of that? You see, there's a worth here. There's a weightiness to Christ's mission. And it demands that you live in a manner worthy of this mission, of what he did. Let's just picture this. Imagine everyone here at church. We all knew you are going through a rough time in life right now. So we all pitched in. We pulled our money. And we wanted to buy you just a nice vacation. Super vacation, you know, $20,000 around the world, just an amazing trip. It's to give you some time off. We gave, our, we gave up our vacations for years. We just wanted to bless you. We planned this trip in great detail, like a year in advance. We talked to your employer. We just we covered all the bases. You're set. We're giving you this amazing trip. 
just to bless you. So we give you the gift. You seem thankful. But when, it, when the time comes for the vacation, you don't go. You stay home. And so we ask you, like, hey, uh, you know what? Well, why didn't you go on the trip? And you say back, well, you know, there are just some other things I wanted to do that week. I had some gardening to do. I wanted to get an oil change. Just catch up on some reading. So I just you know, didn't really want to go. I want some other things I wanted to do. Wouldn't you agree, just bottom line, there's something wrong with that, right? There's just something wrong with that. And in the same way, and all the more so, there's just something wrong when believers squander the immense gift provided for them by Christ's mission. It's only right for you to walk in a manner worthy of your redemption. Look at verse 20. There's more. Not only it says that Christ was foreknown, and not only was his mission to redeem you planned long ago, but then it says in verse 20, he actually came. He appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So he did it. Not only was this mission planned, but he actually carried it through. He appeared, he showed up, he provided and accomplished redemption at great personal sacrifice. But why? Why did he come? What did he come for? What does it say? He came for the sake of you. And that's even more amazing. Just think about this. Normally in wartime, soldiers, they will risk literally life and limb. They will die to go on a rescue mission for their allies. They will die for their friends. Have you ever heard of a soldier risking his life to go on a rescue mission for an enemy? It's unheard of. That never happens. Nobody ever sacrifices their own life for their enemies. Yeah, isn't that what Christ did? He came on a rescue mission to die, not to rescue his friends. He came to rescue us, his enemies. He died for us. He died for you. This is the personalization of redemption. He didn't come for himself. He didn't come for the animals. He didn't come for the planet. He didn't come for the environment. Came for you. Came to redeem you. It's just amazing to think about. And get this this intensifies the obligation to live rightly before Him. Does that make sense? This intensifies the obligation to live rightly before Him. It, it intensifies your duty to be holy before Him, to do as He says, to live as He directs. And we owe a debt we can't repay. We're not expected to repay. But we can honor, we can respect, we can fear the one who gave us that gift. Give God the respect, the admiration that he is due and live accordingly. Fear God as you remember this third motivator, Christ's mission. Third motivator, Christ's mission. I'm going to finish it up now with the last one, the fourth motivator to fearful living before God. It's salvation's end. Salvation's end. Verse 20. Speaking of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who, verse 21, through him are believers in God. You raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. The final motivator to fearful living. We have salvation's end. What is this? What is salvation's end? What were you saved for? Well, according to verse 21, the answer implied is, is glory. The God who raised Jesus from the dead and who gave him glory, he'll one day do the same for you. And therefore, it says our faith and our hope are in God. Faith, trusting God for the present. Hope, trusting God for the future. But, but still, overall, it's all about God. It's all about trusting God. God enabled us to believe. He provided the power. We can be sure he will one day bring us to glory. And so we look forward to that time, that time of salvation's end. Understand this, though. You have to get this point. This glory only awaits those who believe in Jesus. You catch that? Look at the beginning of verse 21. It's only 
through him that we are believers in God. This verse is teaching the exclusivity of Jesus in coming to God. Jesus himself said, nobody comes to the Father. You want to call God Father, right? Nobody comes to the Father but through me, he said. Nobody. He effectively shut the door on every other world religion in getting you to God. There's no other way. Christ is the only way. So if you don't believe in Christ, you don't believe in the right God. You have a different God. Because God's identity is wrapped up in him being the Father of the Son, of Christ. So if you reject Christ, you reject God. There's no God apart from him. 1 John 2.23 Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. But if you do have Jesus, if you do confess him as the Son and the Savior, if you do trust in his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead to secure your forgiveness, then you have much. You have redemption, you have glory, you have salvation's end. And if you do have this, you should live like this. You should live now like a citizen in heaven. I mean, just think about that time of future glory, of salvation's end. What's it going to be characterized by? Do you think our time in heaven will be characterized by lust and greed and covetousness, lies, anger, jealousy, strife? I think that's what we've got waiting for us. We're saved for a glorious future, so you should start living that way now. Bring your life into conformity with the glory that God saved you for. And understand... God saved you for for glorious, grand, eternal purposes. And when you think about this, it should strike a holy fear in you to live rightly, to live in light of salvation's end. Now, I have to admit, this morning, I feel like I've been a broken record just saying the same thing over and over. You know, fear God, live accordingly. Fear God, live accordingly. That's just how it is. You know, remember God's character, then fear him. And live accordingly. Remember redemption's cost. Then fear him and live accordingly. Remember Christ's mission. Fear him. Live accordingly. Remember salvation's end. Fear him. Live accordingly. It's just over and over. But that's how it is. It's just how it is. It's how scripture talks. It's a pattern of scripture. Here's how it works. I mean, over and over the Bible talks like this. First, God tells us, here's what's real. Here's what's true. Here's what I've done for you in salvation. Here's all that you have in Christ. He just piles on the truth about what he's done. And there's nothing he asks of us. He just tells us, this is what I've done for you. Here's the truth. Here's reality. Then he says, okay, now you remember all that stuff I just told you about what I did for you? Now, here's how to live. Here's what you should do about it. Here's how I want you to to live in light of this truth. That's how scripture speaks over and over again. First, here's what's real. Second, now what you should do about it. That's what we have in 1 Peter this morning. Here's what you're supposed to do. As you contemplate these truths, as you remember the realities concerning God's character, redemption's cost, Christ's mission, salvation's end, as these truths fill your mind, they should cause you to fear. Conduct yourselves in fear during your time on earth. But this fear is not an end in and of itself. It's a means. It means to what? It's a means to living accordingly. To walk in a manner worthy of God's character, redemption's cost, Christ's mission, salvation's end. That's the point. It's all leading us to right living before God, which is where Peter's at in 1 Peter. So this morning, look, I know we haven't drilled down in application. That's okay, because if you get this fear, you remember these truths, you contemplate them, then you get this, this fear like, I need to to fear God. That's going to create your own application. You will create your own application. So reflect on God's character and be fearful. Reflect on redemption's cost. Be fearful. Reflect on Christ's mission. Be fearful. Reflect on salvation's end. Be fearful. And then as you you grow in a holy, reverential, respectful fear, stop and ask yourself, like, wow, what God did for me, who he is, this is amazing. How am I living 
in light of this, what am I doing? What am I not doing? What do I need to start doing? What do I need to stop doing? How can I live more and be holier for the sake of this amazing God and this amazing redemption? What can I do? You'll make your own you'll make your own application. Consider, for instance, your, your secret sins. Your, you know, your pet sins that you feed under the table. Thinking no one sees, no one knows. God knows. Do you think this is living in a manner worthy of his redemption? It's time to starve and to kill those secret sins. And look, we all fall short. Thankfully, God is gracious with us. But still, aim to please him, to honor your your father for the work that he's done. Fear God and live for him. I think the end of Galatians 5 forms a fitting final word for you. Galatians 5, 24 through 25. He says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And that's it. I mean, we do. We live by the Spirit. So let us now walk by the Spirit. Take your flesh, take your sinful passions and desires, and nail them to the cross. And leave this morning with a resolve to lift up your own life in a fear and in a holiness that seeks to live accordingly to all that God has done to redeem you. Let's pray. Father, we do reflect on these truths on who you are, on redemption, on the mission to save us, and the salvation that we have before us. And we, we worship. We thank you. We sit in awe of all that we have in Christ. And Lord, we fear you. You're God. You're God Almighty. You gave so much to redeem us, but you're still the Almighty. You're Father, but you're still Judge. I pray for all of us here that we would grow in a, in a holy, reverential fear of this God who is so big, so magnificent, who's done so much for us. And as we fear you, Lord, help that to be the compass in our lives, to direct us, to guide us, keep us free from error, guide us toward right living. That's what this is about. We can't repay you for the debt that you paid for us, but we can honor you with how we live. So may we do that as we leave here. May we all grow in a fear that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.